0: This is the current federal tax developments for the week of November the 13th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. At Zollers, I'm going to talk about a few things this week that have gone on in the area of tax. First, we're going to talk about the inflation adjusted numbers for 2024 that were published by the IRS late in the week. We also had some minor revisions made in the final beneficial ownership information reporting under the Corporate Transparency Act in the FinCEN identifier rules. So we'll talk briefly about that. The IRS issued its second employee retention tax credit related uh, generic legal advice memorandum, this time taking aim at OSHA related partial shutdown theories that the uh, agency is skeptical of. And finally, I want to briefly discuss an issue I'm seeing come up a lot online, which is if a notice is not binding on the court, does that mean we can just pretend it doesn't exist when advising our clients? Or what do we do about that? In essence, I see a lot of that Been a lot of articles related to the employee retention tax credit that have discussed the status of something like notice 20, 20. I think it's important that we understand both uh, when it would be considered binding, uh, you know, or who is going to consider it binding. I think that's probably the more important way to look at it. Uh, who might not consider it binding. And if we need to argue for a position contrary to the notice, uh, what exactly do we need? And, you know, what are we going to have to come up with? Because even if we say the notice is wrong, that doesn't automatically mean that our position is right. So we need to kind of understand how we have to deal with that situation. But first, let's start off with the inflation adjusted numbers that the IRS issued in Revenue Procedure 2023 This came out on November the 9th. We have these annual inflation adjusted amounts are issued every November. And these are for the 2024 tax items. And in the PDF posted to the IRS website, this was a 30 page PDF. Now, if you get your tax service, obviously it has more fewer, you know, more pages, less pages, because obviously the fonts used, the, uh, the spacing and all that stuff changes. But the basic one there is 30 pages, which is pretty normal for what they've usually done with their standard printout. Section 3 of the notice, or the revenue procedure, is where you find all of the numbers. And there's a really good index at the front of it that tells you where you can find the specific items you're looking for. And these numbers are arranged by code section. So if you know you're looking for something that makes a change under a specific code section, then you basically know where to go look in the table of contents to find it. Now, right up front, section 3.01 has the 2024 tax rate tables. And this is for all the filing statuses. Now, I should say, if you have, if you subscribe to a tax publication from, let's say, from CCH, from BNA, or I guess Bloomberg, we call it these days, uh, or Thomson Reuters, you may very well already have gotten a set of tax uh, tables for next year. But I think if you check all of those, they are all done after the inflation numbers are there. What the publishers do. Is they they apply the standard methodologies and come up with what they believe will be the tables and generally they're correct Uh, but these are the official officials so you want to double check if you have a set of tables from an earlier publication something you got from your tax service you probably want to double check that this the tables in this revenue procedure agree with your tax service that makes sure they got it right section 3.03 remember the capital gain rates Are not tied to the regular rates that happened with the 2017 well the rates never were but where the break is for the highest rate where we go to the higher capital gain rate used to be tied to the higher highest individual rate but weirdly enough in the tax cuts and jobs act they decided to link the cap the maximum capital gain rate to the inflation adjusted maximum rate under the old pre-2017 law And to have a different way of computing the maximum, where we hit the maximum rate for ordinary income. So yes, you have to remember that at 3.03, you're going to find the new 2024 maximum capital gain rate, where we hit the 20% rate. And I realize that normally we're also going to have a 3.8% net of income tax, but that's computed under a separate set of rules and you don't necessarily have to have that. So again, we're going to talk about, we just leave that there. If you work with clients who have the importance basically the earned income tax credit. Section 3.06 has all the numbers, tables, etc. that impact that for 2024. Uh, Section 3.11, going to kind of the other end of the income scale, shall we say, normally, Uh, that has the exemption amount for the alternative minimum tax and nearby you'll find other AMT related items like how the kiddie tax is impacted and all those issues in that regard. Section 3.13 tells us that expenses for elementary and secondary school teachers deductible above the line for 24 will, as I recall, remain at $300, as opposed to go there. They finally went up from $250 to $300 for 23 and it appears they'll remain there for 24 uh, Section 3.15 has a standard deduction for 2024 for married couple filing a joint return. The standard deduction would be $29,200. For head of household taxpayer, $21,900. For a single taxpayer or married filing separate, the limit will be, or the deduction will be $14,600. Um, we also have the 179 numbers in section 3.25. The maximum amount of 179 deduction for 2024 will be $1,220,000. Uh, the maximum that can apply to an SUV is $30,500. And this becomes important again because Remember, we've lost the bonus depreciation. Now it's down to 80%. It will drop again. So it's going to keep dropping. So suddenly you'll be back to again. If you want to get full write-off, for, especially for a lot of small companies, be using 179. But that does mean that the SUVs will not get a full write-off, unlike what we saw when we had 100% bonus depreciation. The phase out of the 179 limit begins if you acquire property in excess of $3,050,000 in 2024. We also have the Qualified Business Income, the QBI, Section 109, Cap A Threshold Amount. For 2024, for a married couple, married couple, I'll get the words out, filing a joint return, that limit will be $383,000. For everybody else, other filing statuses, limit will be $191,950. Yes, we, we know we didn't have this year. Every so often, do the way the inflation adjustment works, we'll get a quirky, slightly different number for married filing separate from single and others. But this year, everybody's at 191950 one nine fifty, so we're kind of back to all the same. Uh, the limitation on three thirty one for claiming cash basis method of accounting will go up to thirty million dollars uh, this year, up from a so we're now at that level. Remember, we started at twenty five million due to an inflation adjustment. We're now going to be at thirty million dollars. Uh, we also have the threshold for the excess business loss. Remember, on a form ten forty. You can't claim net business losses in excess of a certain amount. Uh, and you exclude wages in computing the business loss on the individual return. That limitation is $305,000 unless you have a married couple filing joint return, in which case it will be $610,000. And again, that's for 2024 with that inflation adjustment. Section 339, in 2024, the foreign earned income exclusion will rise to $126,500. In Section 3.41 of the Revenue Procedure, we discover the unified credit against the estate tax will go to $13,610,000 for decedents that die in 2024. And the annual gift exclusion for present interest gifts will be $18,000 for 2024 per Section 3.43. Now, there are a number of other things in there, like the adoption expense numbers, uh, weird things about arrows excise tax on arrows there's all kinds of weird numbers in there too various penalties are also now inflation adjusted that are fixed dollar amounts all of those are found in the revenue procedure we're not going to go list every one for you uh, if you have an interest in all those things are inflation adjusted and we didn't cover them you can go back and look at that but remember everything related to qualified plans and IRA is covered in a notice we've covered previously that one always comes out a little bit earlier and the inflation adjusted numbers for HSAs and high deductible health plans and those sorts of things that comes out way earlier in the year, usually around March. So there are basically always three key inflation adjusted releases from the IRS during the year. You get the basically the HSA one early in the year. We get the uh, retirement plan one somewhere in October and then somewhere in November. We generally get the inflation adjusted numbers for everything else. And so we now have our complete, basically inflation-adjusted numbers for tax purposes for 2024. Just quickly, I want to note that FinCEN issued final regulations for the FinCEN identifier rules. These really had very minor changes from what's proposed, and it's not really a very big, you know, it's not like lots and lots of text related to the actual reg. Way, 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 you know, huge, like 98% of the, uh, item published is the preamble and related text. And the actual, I think there's like two sentences that actually hits the reg. But this is RIN 1506-AB49. is is a revision to the 31 CFR uh, section 1010.380. And this came out published in the Federal Register on November 8th of 2023. And as I noted, this is just minor revisions to this idea of a FINCEN identifier. A fence and identifier is meant to provide a shortcut way to kind of cross-reference information that should be on your report, this entity's report, but exists somewhere else, and we can just kind of cross over and do it. In this particular case, we're looking at the ability to use an entity's fence and identifier. that means, you know, let, let's say that an entity owns an interest in the, this entity that's filing. Uh, That entity obviously has individual owners. They've identified their beneficial owners. And with enough related entities, it's very possible they're going to basically have the the same owners, right, for these two entities. They're going to be identical. Well, in that case, you can use the FinCEN identifier number of the first entity that you file with all of the detailed information. On the second entity's return, and effectively just cross-reference so you don't have to keep changing everything all the time if things happen in that first upper level entity maybe that owns an interest in your entity those changes will just automatically flow through when that entity makes a change and that's the idea of using the fence and ID identifier now there are both pros and cons to using it so I'm not going to go into that in detail but definitely there are some situations especially ones where we don't expect to have a lot of changes or maybe where we do expect to have a lot of changes, but they'll always be consistent. We'll never change. You know, this parent entity will always own interest in these other entities. So, yeah, we'll be able to go down that path. Uh, Those cases probably will simplify their filing situations. Next up, the IRS issued its second generic legal advice memorandum, GLAM, AM 2023-007, issued November 3rd of 2023, on employee retention tax credit uh, justifications for claiming a partial or full suspension and probably is partial suspension of business operations. So the first one we had out, you may remember was the IRS went and basically they issued it to indicate their great skepticism with a large number of what I refer to as the extended supply chain justifications or claiming that a business was fully or partially suspended. This one is meant to signal the IRS's skepticism on the use of a theories that relate to various occupational, self, occupational Safety and Health Administration, OSHA, related communications issued during the COVID-19 pandemic, and specifically during the period that the employee Retention Credit went over. Uh, this is probably the second most popular uh, you know, kind of excuse that many of the ERC mills would use if they weren't using supply chain, which at least in my experience has been the largest set. You know, they try to use that most often. But if you're going to do a flaky claim, the OSHA claims in many cases seem to follow very, very quickly behind. So the IRS is basically given note here that they don't necessarily agree with those claims. Now, before we go anywhere, I want to make sure you understand these generic legal advice memorandums are legal memos internal, theoretically, but they know they're going to be published. Legal memos, in fact, even reference them on their, you know, on their FAQ pages for the ERC. But they're, they're memos that outline a what's essentially going to be a legal or litigating position of the IRS if this type of a claim is made. They're not really binding on either the IRS or taxpayers. But it's pretty clear the Irish uses this to communicate uh, both to their agents, the appellate conferees, etc. The position that the national office is planning to take uh, and the position that the chief counsel's office will take. And so probably tell the agents and appellate conferees that you better not, uh, you better not do something different than this without getting permission from us, but we're going to do. And, you know, but And certainly, it tells us as our clients, you know, which positions, if we take them, are more likely to be challenged by the IRS. But it doesn't mean that if you take a contrary position, you won't succeed. But it does mean it's more difficult. And it does mean that there's a much greater chance that if you get called up for exam on this issue, that you're going to have to go to court to attempt to win, which may not be assured by any means. Again, I, too often I see people believe that once they say the magic incantation, that this guidance is not binding on the courts, that that just means that, okay, we can ignore this entirely. No, there are practical ramifications from having this come down. I think the major one is most, uh, most basically tax disputes are resolved before anybody files a petition with the court. And this is going to have, I think, whether or not a court has to file it will not necessarily be that important if you have no ability or plans to go to court, especially once the IRS figures that out in the exam, that there's no way this is going to court. So in that case, I think you have to then say that, okay, we have to take these a lot more seriously. And if you're going to court, we'll talk about that after I talk about this, about even there, I think you still got to worry about these. Now, this memorandum, as they often do, presents two scenarios. In the first scenario, the employer was located in a state that lifted basically all COVID uh, health restrictions in quarter one of 2021. Uh, As a practical matter, that would cover my state of Arizona. They pretty much, they lifted everything. The last few restrictions really they had uh, at the state level were restricted in March of 21. So quarter one, 21, they pulled it. Uh, No measures were continued by the employer after the state restrictions were lifted except they encouraged employees to wear masks and practice routine hygienic practices like washing your hands, right? Things like that, you know, regularly. So that that was it, nothing else. Now, the employer in this case is claiming that they were partially suspended due to communications from OSHA that related to those things they did continue. We're going to talk about that, the IRS perspective on that, as well as a secondary scenario where prior to 2020 employees telework two to three times a week and in 2020 and into the third quarter of 21 they allowed to employees to telework full-time instead of just two to three times a week so we allowed a full-time telework instead of you know instead of only a few times but we would already been doing it ahead of time i think that's going to be somewhat important here in that scenario uh, but we'll look at it. Some people, though, use the theory there that there were restrictions imposed on the employee at the home under the OSHA rules. And we'll get to that. The IRS has real problems with that theory. Um, so they talk about OSHA guidance that was published on the OSHA website and other locations during the period the employee retention tax credit was in effect. And generally, there were two categories. There were instructions to field offices and certified health and safety officials. And those are called CSHOs, is what you'll see them referred to throughout this thing. And also, some non-binding guidance was issued for employers and employees to basically reduce the risk of having COVID spread throughout the business. Uh, From OSHA's perspective, this was for the uh, health of the employees. Uh, as a practical matter, knowing a couple of CPA firms that got hit with everybody at COVID, everybody with COVID at once under wrong things, some of that was honestly just just to try to limit the chance that everybody was going to be out sick at the same time. So yes, you know there, there were other reasons why we did that. In some cases, we'd be a little we'd have some more restrictions. Now the interim response plan instructions for office for their office OSHA office employees and for the CA CSHOs stated openly that it did not impose any additional legal obligations on employers. It may have given some discussed some issues, may have talked about some issues, but in essence, it was only talking about existing obligations of employers to keep employees safe on the job site. And that includes safe from various, you know, potential diseases one might be exposed to on the job due to the nature of the job. those Those are generic laws that have existed well before COVID-19 came out of hiding and we suddenly had it running through everything. Because those obligations issued prior to the emergency and thus weren't orders that were directly related to COVID-19, and as the order, orders won't, weren't issued related to COVID-19, as required by the law, the position is going to be on that theory, those pre-existing laws cannot possibly qualify you under this rule for being, this, you know, for being a qualifying order. As well, they noted that a guide called the Protecting Workers Guidance on Mitigating and Preventing the Spread of COVID-19 in the Workplace contained recommendations for employers and employees. The key word there being recommendations. As I've said multiple times, the federal government recommends you eat broccoli, but that's not an order. Nobody comes and hauls you to jail because you haven't had your proper amount of broccoli for the week. Now, maybe the broccoli farmers would like that to happen. You know, we need to eat more broccoli. So, you know, raise the price of broccoli. But that's not how that works, right? That's not an order. Finally, the guidance also notes that OSHA does not expect home-based workplaces. talking about that guidance there. They've said it specifically, right? So work-from-home spaces basically aren't impacted by this guidance. They're not going to come into your home and make sure that you're masking while you and your spouse are each working for your employer. That wasn't something we're going to do. We're not going to, we're not going to verify your, you know, you're doing anything internally, you know, to protect yourself from that other person working in your home, who happens to be the person you live with anyway, but what the heck. So what about these supposed OSHA orders and that that's the claim, right? We're going to see that a lot of the mills are saying, Hey, there's all these orders from OSHA, right? And therefore, since they covered virtually every employer, that's how you get to the theory of virtually every employer qualifies for the Employee Retention Tax Credit. Which, amazingly, would suggest that the people that scored the bills for Congress, you know, and the Congress people that wrote these bills, uh, simply were wildly incompetent. Because the, the projected cost of the bills, no way would come in line with everybody qualifying. So what they, they, they said specifically, assumptions, vague statements, and news articles are insufficient to meet the definition of orders for the purposes of qualifying as an employer. And what they're saying is you can't say, well, oh, come on, we, we assume that if OSHA came in here and we hadn't required X, that, that that would be actionable. You've got to show it would, you know, you basically you can't just use assumptions. Uh, you can't use vague statements. You know about improving and protecting that that's not an order we need something actionable to do it and obviously news articles if somebody wrote up something in a journal somewhere and said hey you know due to this uh you know we're 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 saying that we think that you 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 know that these laws require you to do x that's not the agency saying it right again now we can get into some arguments about whether or not there's some way to prove those are the requirements but again These were very, very broad assumptions that the following things might apply. That's usually how they were worded. And obviously that that would be a problem. I I kind of agree there. And they also note the statutes don't, don't mention recommendations, guidelines, or other informal standards. All the statute recommends are orders. And again, we're going to go back to the statute ultimately to determine how this works. Now, the IRS then goes on and provides justification for their analysis of the law, which they say, which is a magic word I see used quite often too in the analysis we're going to talk about next, that the plain text meaning of orders under the law eliminates the OSHA recommendations or other guidance found on their website that people are citing. They go back and they decide look, there's really no no definition of what is an order in. Any of the uh, acts, the original CARES Act, the modifications we made at the end of 2020, the, uh, the changes that, that were made as part of the American Rescue Plan Act for the third quarter, or the Inflation Reduction Act for the fourth quarter you know, that came out. So all of those bills did something to the Employee Retention Tax Credit. But nowhere did they ever insert a definition of order. The IRS says, so we're looking for the plain meaning of order. And the legal meaning of it, and they go back to Black's Law Dictionary, which is a place courts like to go to to look for legal meanings, and there Black's Law Dictionary says an order is a command or mandate delivered by a government official. So they're saying that is the definition that we would expect a court to go to in order to interpret what this means, because there is no internal definition. The context of it doesn't imply this somehow isn't what they're talking about. And so basically they're going to say that should be your order. And they note that the OSHA guidance cited in the GLAM, so the specific ones they talk about, fail to meet the standards because they are at best recommendations. And as they say, there's recommendations with no new mandatory guidance. That's not going to cover you under this. That's their position. They also reject that you could use laws or regulations that predate COVID-19. Remember, under the rules of this, it had to be a order, government order related to COVID-19 and they would interpret that to mean that an order cannot be related to COVID-19 unless the orders issued after COVID-19 became a thing. COVID-19 did not motivate Congress in writing the original rules. There was no COVID-19. So it could not have been based on CDC guidance and the like related to COVID-19 because that didn't exist when the law came in. So that's their argument there. And But now this is where, especially in the GLAMS, They 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 do tend to back off. This lets you know that they're they're setting up a secondary defense. Even if you find they are orders, you still must show full or partial suspension of your business operations. And to be totally honest, to me, this is always the flaw I've seen when I've looked at reports from a whole lot of the mills and we ask them for the backup. You know, okay. You say they qualify. Uh, Can you please show us, you know, your work papers backing this up? Because you know, if they get examined, what are we? What are you going to show the IRS? And assuming they give you anything, and often they won't give you anything. uh, But assuming they do, you tend to find that it's, you know, it talks vaguely about these orders that, well, you know, they they don't really tell us exactly, but they're vaguely there, and they never tie them back to the business, and they don't make these shows. You have to, you have to go ahead and make the show that this order and how it specifically caused your business to have something that rose to the level of a partial suspension of business operations and i've said for a long time the word suspension is way more drastic than a partial than a modification right if they meant modification it would have said modification suspension again going to the meanings means cessation right so you were unable to do some, you know, portion of your business at all. It stopped it. Uh, so that, that to me, and that to me is a definition that all often gets totally ignored. Everybody just goes after any modification for the business is a suspension. And it's like, no, no, no. They, they would have said modification if they meant modification. So I don't know that's a suspension. I think a lot of that gets derived from some of the restaurant examples. Where the IRS was very generous to restaurants, I'll be honest, they were very generous to restaurants in those rules, and you know that that's where they said, well, you know, if if you like lost one third of your tables for indoor dining, that was a partial suspension. And I kind of understand where they get it because we lost capacity, so we couldn't serve as many people as we used to, and that so you know that that being unable to serve. You know, one third, you know, a, a number. So we reduced our capacity by one third, ability to serve people, that that represented a cessation of being able to conduct the business to serve that one third. I kind of understand their theory, but I, I think that is what kind of led to this whole well, any modification is good enough. And I would note in notice 2021 20, 20, outside of restaurants, the IRS never, never seems to be this generous. So we go there, okay? Now, the IRS does acknowledge that it's possible a state or local government could have actually taken these OSHA recommendations and made them into a mandate for a business. Because again, there are a lot of local governments, there's a lot of states, right? There's a lot of entities that could have imposed these mandates. But they said, so if they did that, they would then agree you've got an order, right? It'd really be the state order, which is referencing back to the uh, federal OSHA rules. And it's mandated by COVID-19. You know, they did use COVID-19 as a reason to make this mandate. But they said, even then, you still have to have, uh, you know, you must show you got to connect the dots. How did that particular, whatever it was that OSHA said recommended you do that now your state or city, county, whatever, said you have to do. How did that lead to a suspension of your business, right? A full or partial suspension of the business. And that, that's actually the key issue. Now, this leads into our next discussion topic and last one for this week, which is what should we do about the ERC guidance now? Okay. I want to talk about this because we've talked about a couple of GLAMs. We've talked over the years about Notice 2021 20, 20. And I have started to see a lot of articles now that are kind of pushing back. And, you know, they always, and right now, a lot of them seem to always go after the same thing Notice 2021 20. 21, 20 and i don't disagree with their statement i think it is true however you know and some of them are very clear about what they're talking about when we're talk about this limited issue some of them especially if it's for a more general audience lets people jump to the next assumption which i think becomes dangerous let's talk about this right so these articles deal with the erc guidance we have and what impact that guidance would have and generally the actual context here which is also easy for a non-pro to meet is if we took the matter to court now i hate to tell you this but most people that got the erc will not have the means or the will to take the matter to court in which case then that's the first little star by this because if we don't go to court now we got to look to what is going to be the impact on the level, the highest level they're willing to dispute? Because many of them won't even be willing to go to appeals, right? They're going to start looking at the money piling up from the exam costs, especially if they filed with a mil, via mill, a mill which itself goes out of business, and therefore their exam costs are being borne by them, not the mill that promised to cover the exam costs. They may start looking at those exam costs, and even though they'll be told, well, we could appeal this, But, you know, the person doing it had nothing to do with the claim is going to say, but, you know, we might not win that appeal. They may very well just decide to cut off at the exam level. Which point then we have a very different view of this guidance. And that's what I mean by the answer is not as simple as you'd expect. And the problem is when we have a statement that's indisputably true, and I'm going to tell you the statement that's indisputably true. Right in this that that I'm going to totally agree with what these articles are saying on this issue. But you give it more impact than you should given the reality of your client's situation. And I think very specifically the reality of how far the client's going to push the matter. That's going to be key. So given that we just got another glam. Let's take a look at what we have. And. What, you know, what, what really impact is there of those particular statements? Okay. Now, the guidance we currently have on the ERC, we have the text of the statute. That goes to the original CARES Act. It didn't go to the IRC then. In fact, only went to the IRC very late in the game. Um, and then it was amended at the end of 2020 that gave us uh, actually two variations of it, a retroactive 2020 version. In essence, we, we basically retroactively changed what was in the CARES Act and the credit it would give us for 2020 that was remember the original cares act only got for this for 2020 and then we added a brand new 2021 version with some more modifications then we got the american rescue plan act which added to which now moved it to the internal revenue code section 3134 and then that version was actually then changed one final time by the inflation reduction act of 2021 that was the one that basically cut it off the third quarter for everybody except for recovery startup businesses. And, you know, caused some quirks there, but, you know, had, had some other minor changes there. So we have the statutory tax. We also have IRS guidance that gets published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin. And that, I, that I'm going to treat as a separate category because that has one important distinction that the others don't. Uh, that includes basically all of the notices and including the key notice 2021 which is the longest and has the most detailed explanation of what is a suspension. Right? The pros and cons of what's a suspension, what's a government order, uh, how you compute reduction of revenue, all of those things are in that notice. We have various IRS legal memoranda. And really right now that consists of two generic legal advice memoranda. Uh we could also see chief counsel advice is arising here because we may. We could see kind of other documents, maybe even not really quite the same, uh, but things like there might even be some private letter rulings issued, though I doubt it. Could be technical advice from random. That, that's also possible. And that's, well, kind of in this category, but also kind of not. Those are a little special. And then we have the issues of what the IRS publishes frequently asked questions and other materials they place on their website. Right? So the, this includes things like their news releases, right? Um, you know their, their FAQs related to the employee retention credit and all of those things. And remember, originally, what we find in notice 2021-20 appeared first in 2020 primarily on the IRS FAQ. Only when the law was changed at the end of 2020 did the IRS come back in March of 21 and basically move that stuff into a notice. And there is a reason why you move it to a notice if you're the IRS. Because you're bringing it up the line of authority. And that that was part of the deal to make it somewhat more serious than the FAQ. Generally, we'll talk about the ordering of this, but the ordering of this is basically the level of importance that these various pieces of guidance have. Um, and, and I'll define importance as we get to each one, but definitely, you know, if you have statutory text that, uh, that without question backs up your position, then you'll carry that position in court. Right, that's a given. And we'll talk about what the others mean. Okay. But the further, the, the, once you get away from the statutory text, it becomes possible that a court will arrive at a different decision. We'll talk about that. And the reason why, let's talk about the statute. This goes back to uh, the case that gets cited most often, is Connecticut National Bank versus Germain, a 1992 Supreme Court case. But basically, If the plain text of the statute clearly provides for only a single interpretation of the rules, that is how the law will be applied. Now that's subject to a bit of an asterisk. We always can have terms redefined in the law. So if the statute says, like an example for partnerships is, only cash distributions from a partnership can cause you to have a taxable gain on distributions. Okay, that, that's great. So if I don't receive cash in a partnership, I wouldn't pay tax. That doesn't turn out to be true, even though it would seem to be the plain text meaning of the statute. Why? Because we find in 752 that Congress then defines a decrease in liabilities allocated to the partner is treated as a distribution of cash to the partner. That means in addition to the plain meaning of that term, we just plopped on another meaning. Right. We added to it so they can redefine. You always do watch in the code for definitions because, you know, you're not going to be using plain text. You're going to be using. Now, if the definition itself only, uh, only can lead to one interpretation, then we're probably back to the statute controls. And at that point, congressional intent's not relevant. Now, And that was actually the key issue in Connecticut National Bank versus Germain. It was very clear that the result per the plain text of the statute was radically different from what Congress thought they had adopted. The Supreme Court said, Congress got to go fix that themselves. The courts cannot fix that for Congress. And it doesn't really matter even if the guidance is in a regulation. It doesn't really matter if that is clearly at odds with the plain definition of the statute. The IRS is allowed to interpret and, you know, and get rid of ambiguities, at least currently, right, uh, following the old uh, Mayo Clinic case, or Mayo Foundation case, I should say. Um, and that still hasn't been overturned, so we'll go down that. But the IRS is not allowed to go back in and say, you know, let's say, you know, on their own, change the FICA tax rate that's in plain text and law. They couldn't raise that on their own. They can't cut that on their own. That's not within their purview because Congress has very clearly said what that has to be. If the statute is ambiguous, then we return Then we turn to various rules the courts have developed over the years for statutory construction, how we interpret a statute and potentially, and this is where there's been now some leeway by the courts, uh, executive branch interpretation deference. Currently, as I said, Mayo Foundation is still a Supreme Court decision that's not been officially overturned but that only deals with regulations and we don't have any of those here right generally the court will look to see if they can find the term used elsewhere you know for a similar in a in a another statute like in the irc or at least related enough that you know that 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 would tell you how it looks like congress thinks where this thing works is there some place where it's made clear and we're just going to then borrow that and bring it over Otherwise, they tend to look at the context in which the word was used, and they they will take look at the normal meaning, and you know. But many words have multiple meanings if you look in a dictionary, so we may use context to help us decide which meaning is there, and maybe context to give us some other clues. But otherwise, we tend to go just straight, you know, a straight dictionary. If there's not a legal meaning. So, it hasn't been used consistently in the law to mean a certain thing. Then we go back and start looking at the standard plain text meaning of the law. We also may look at evidence of congressional intent if it's still unclear. Now, that's a bit more iffy because, of course, Congress doesn't only vote on congressional intent. But we might find something there that gives us a guide as to how to deal with this. What does it look like they were meaning to do? Now, but now we get, so let's say that we finish the statute and the statute's unclear. I'd say for ERC, the statute never tells us what is an order. It never tells us what is a full or partial suspension. It doesn't have a definition for it. You know, and it d- doesn't tell us, you know, you know, the various broad categories that this has to impact. So we got a lot of areas that that there's going to be some interpretation on. Now, for IRS guidance, regulations are offered the highest deference. Regardless of how you look at it, they tend to get the highest deference. They go through the more thorough review process, at least if they're final regulations. But it really doesn't matter for the ERC because we don't really have any regulations here. At best, we have regulations and related payroll statutes that we might argue give some guidance here, but even that's if you're so no regulations, we can skip that level. Next up is subregulatory guidance that's published in the Internal Revenue Bulletin. Now, that's the highest level of guidance we have. And that is definitely subject to interpretation about how much deference a courts will give. And that's been true for a long time. The notices are what are that in this case, that's very clear. And in most articles, the question is how much respect a court must give them. That is a matter of dispute. But the trend seems to be to make it less likely that we're going to just say, hey, the IRS are the experts here. You know, they're the the people that deal with this all the time. We're just going to automatically defer to them. You're going to find less automatic deference. And I, I agree, that is how it works. Right? If you go to court. But the one thing that is true about this, because in the IRB, that would not necessarily be true if it's published elsewhere, is that the courts will still bind the IRS on this guide. What I mean by that is, if the IRS issues a notice, they're not going to be allowed to take a position contrary to that notice unless they warn taxpayers that you you can no longer rely on the notice. And of course, they haven't said that about any of these notices, so it would appear we still could rely on them. And that's important to understand before we get started, because that means these notices serve as a safe harbor if you meet the notice, your position comes entirely inside the notice, then you're going to be in good shape as long as you have the backup, the factual backup to support your case. And by the way, factual backup is far more likely to be your problem in any dispute with the IRS than the law interpretation. Right, we'll say that up front. Also, and this is a problem, too many articles just stop by saying, hey, the courts don't have to respect this which is fine as far as it goes but even if you're going to court the fact the court does not have to respect inclusions does not mean they won't by that i mean you know the court's going to review this right and one thing to remember and i think a lot of you know if you if you're cpas we have heard this discussion before that, you know, that if you're going to be in a public company filing with the SEC, there is an advantage having four certain accounting firms sign off on your documents going to the SEC. That's because the SEC is very, very used to seeing them. And they're likely to give them a higher, you know, more of a benefit of the doubt than a, you know, SEC filing they see signed by a local accounting firm operating out of Grand Island, Nebraska, that has never filed with the agency before that's likely to get more scrutiny or they're likely to be more skeptical about it remember the courts involved here that are considered to be ones that actually understand tax well enough that we pay more attention to the rulings uh you know district courts ought to come out of left field and the irs then takes to take those left field rulings and take them up to the court of appeals in which case then the court of appeals overturns the district court so Courts of Appeal and the, uh, you know, the tax court and to a large extent, the Court of Claims, they're used to seeing the Irish Chief Counsel's Office and the uh, Justice Department. Those attorneys regularly appear before those courts. So they tend to develop a level of trust. You know, the Chief Counsel's Office is like a law firm that has certain standards and the courts are used to those, understand those and are more comfortable with them. They're just more comfortable with how they present things too because they see it all the time so like it or not the irs chief counsel's office has a step up especially if your you know current count if your current person you're working with is a not an attorney and b even if an attorney is one that has never argued a case before even the tax court um yeah you're probably going at a bit of disadvantage if you're not following the irs notices right and at the very least you've got to recognize when we go to court that what you're hoping for let's say you do have somebody that's been in court many times has a reputation with the tax court and the court of appeal in question well in that case then there's a reasonable chance that at least you're on the same you know, on even ground even footing but that does mean that you just have a position paper a memorandum you know a position for your case that is going to be evaluated on the same terms as the IRS's. And yours has no special, you know, standing with the court either. The court doesn't have to respect your attorney's analysis of the case either, right? So again, it's not binding. So that's important to understand. Too often I see people think that, well, if NOS 2021-20 is not binding, then automatically my contrary position is fine. No, that's not what it means. Right? So that, that's how we do it. The court will look to the statutory construction methods where I talked to, you know, about to analyze the guidance, so they'll, they'll try to figure out, well, you know, OK, given what we know, given what the statute says, given these two analysis, which one appears to be more in line with how we would analyze the case? using the standard rules of statutory analysis. And definitely this is going to be a case of which judge hears your case? Some judges will be more likely to continue to grant deference to the IRS in these areas. Uh, while others may be more skeptical. But you don't have full choice over your judge, right? So, and the Court of Appeals is not likely to overrule the fact-finding or the findings of the judge, you know, if they, you know, they're not going to be necessarily thrilled to go do a lot of work they don't think they have to do. So, unless the, you know, unless they think that the IRS position is just utterly ridiculous, you know, can't be suspended, can't be supported, they're less likely to pick up your case and go ahead and go off with your attorney's uh, analysis if the crown court's already decided in favor of the IRS analysis. Again, that, that same kind of subtle bias is there. The IRS tends to win most court cases. Now, again, most of that is due to the fact that facts are bad, but again, same basic issue. And finally, it's fairly certain that the IRS, at least up to the administrative level, is not likely to go against this guidance within was in the IRB. At best, you might get something at appeals if it becomes very, very clear that you're going to court. But I think even then, you're more likely not to get that kind of, you know, back off from appeals until you filed at least the initial court petition. And then, if we're sent back to appeals, it's a tax court issue. We're sent back to appeals there, or we're just, you know, going to be negotiating with Chief Count with the counsel's office or the justice department. Then, then they might concede based on risk of litigation, but. Otherwise, if it appears that your client very clearly is not going to tax court, one of the ways they'll probably make that judgment is, I'm looking around, in this whole exam, I've never seen any evidence of an attorney being involved. So either this going to court pro se, which means we're probably going to win big, or, right, it's just not going to court at all. So, yeah, if if you want to use the threat of going to court, I almost always suggest you bring attorneys in early. Yeah, they will probably cost a bit more. But IRS is now on notice that apparently you're willing to spend the money, which means you're willing to litigate, which may get you the better result. Just saying. The yeah, IRS legal memorandum. Now, this is important to realize. They're not considered generally binding on either the IRS or the, or the taxpayers by the courts. There's a possibility a court may want to hold the IRS to it, especially since they cross-referencing on their webpages now. But, you know. Basically, the law, in theory, doesn't bind either, and the webpages will say it doesn't bind either. However, that legal memorandum is an analysis that the taxpayer must be ready to refute because it's most likely the artists will stand behind it. And they need to show that their analysis is better if challenged, right? How they could distinguish their case from what the memorandum was talking about or how they can show that their analysis of the law is superior to the analysis of the law in the memorandum. Again, it's not like the IRS agents are going to take a position contrary to the guidance. If they're aware of it, in exam. So you, if you're not willing to go to appeals, you're probably not going to win against this position either. Um, then for facts and website materials, this is the least authoritative. In fact, it tells us right up front of the web page it's not. However, it is generally published up there to indicate to people the direction the IRS is planning to take on exam. It might be saber rattling. You know, it might be a position they're going to back down on appeals. But probably on exam, they're going to take the position. We have to realize that. Again, you know, the taxpayer needs to critically analyze position. And that means not just look for the weakness in it. But you got to look for the weaknesses in your own position you want to put forward. And you have to recognize the strengths of the IRS analysis. Right? We need to have clear view of this. Right? Don't don't just go in. I'm always leery of any tax expert that comes in and tells me that their analysis is the only way. This is how it this out works. When it's clear that we've got ambiguity. There are many ways it might work. Now, you may believe that is the most likely, and I'm willing to accept that from you. Well, maybe willing, we'll see what you said. Could be I think you're totally out of left field. But if you're telling me that there is no possibility a court would ever find against your position, i'm beginning to think maybe i should find another counsel to talk to and just just say as you go down there i know they like to be confident but you know what I remember a stat quoted me a couple of years ago about a study a number of years ago now about a study well they talked about cases that went to trial and ultimately had a decision rendered and they basically asked the attorneys before the just before the trial started what is the chance that your client wins this case hands down exactly as you have the case outlined and has you, you know, the position you're taking? And 75% of attorneys said their client would win that way. The problem, of course, is that that's not possible. At best, 50% of those attorneys will be right. And in real world, in most cases, people don't win all the way on their position. Meaning that uh, trial attorneys tend to be overconfident. Okay? They like to talk in terms of certainty. But you, you need to get a real-world view of the case. Not Because I guarantee you, the IRS attorney, you know, the IRS Justice Department attorney on the other side, is likely just as sure they're going to win 100%. So, probably both of them are wrong. Which is one of the things to look at. So, what did you do as an advisor? First, be sure that your position is not contrary to plain text reading of the statute. And look into account all relevant provisions of the statute, not just one. It's not enough to just show your business was disrupted. Remember, we've got to find an order. We've got to tie the order to the, dis, to the, to the, to the disruption. We've got to show disruption was you know would, would meet the definition of a suspension. Too often I see people ju- just analyze one part of that analysis. And ignore everything else. And you do notice that that the glam falls back on the other pieces. So even if you carry the order, which they don't think it's an order, if you carry that, they tell you all the other objections they're going to raise because probably your, your factual backup won't be enough to carry the other issues. And like I said, from what I've seen from many of the ERC consultants' reports that I've seen, we need a lot better than that to carry the position. Right? We just don't have the factual backup. In the material they've assembled. Uh, Notice positions can be used as a safe harbor. This is important to understand. And I've always been a little worried because quite often there are places in this notice that I and others who read it think the IRS is being maybe more generous than we probably would get from a court in a plain language position. Now, I think they're being more strict in other areas, true. But if we decide to ignore the notice, and argue for plain text. Are we also giving up the IRS? You know, can is the IRS going to be allowed to abandon those parts? You know, things where they gave more broad, broader guides. If we don't accept the IRS view, let's say, of what a government order is. Uh, can we still accept their very, very generous view of restaurants? And, you know, what would be considered a suspension of a restaurant? You know, assuming that we can show this is an order and to tie it out. Uh, you know, can, can we still take the very generous view of suspension? In the restaurant context. Because again, for those 2120 2021 20, it would appear that let's say a fast food restaurant that did have over 10% of its revenue come from the dine-in facility, um, you know, very well could still qualify for the ERC, at least during all the period their dining facility was closed. And potentially depending on how much dine-in business they had uh before, you know, in 2019. Perhaps even when they just have, you know, the the number of tables taken out of service. And and apparently that works even if their drive-through sales now are way more than their total sales were back in 19. Do we lose that option? Not clear. Uh, You know, if basically, if the IRS position is not contrary to plain text of statute, if your position is not contrary to plain text statute, you have a reasonable basis to be claimed, you have a right. You know the client can file the the claim. You can sign it, but the client deserves to be told if this position is outside of what the IRS safe harbor would cover, and the relative risks. In essence, if we are examined, what is the chance that we're going to have to expend? That you're going to have to expend significant funds to defend this, because again, unless the IRS position is totally unreasonable, you're unlikely to get an award of fees. So, you know, what's it going to cost to defend this? And remember, there's also a chance you spend all this money to defend it and you lose. So, clients need to understand and know those risks. Now, as there are no regulations, we don't, we don't have to consider the currently what be the high level we'd have to clear to successfully challenge the final regulations. That, that's good news to us. I notice there's most significant existing guidance we have to deal with, there are no court cases yet. Um, you know, if their claim goes to exam, anything against the notice are the ones the IRS is le- least likely to back off on. And we're, we'd have to go to court in an exam scenario. You want to get your credit. You want to be able to keep it. You have to go to court. Okay. That's an issue. And make sure you have a defensible position, a persuasive argument. Wire analysis at least is good. And preferably wire analysis is better than that of the IRS in the notice. We'd like to say not just that we're as good, but we're better than their analysis, right? And clearly better. The GLAMs are likely to be positions that are unlikely to be conceded at the exam level, right? Very much. They indirectly concede certain litigation risks that may open up appeals to, you know, some, some back off on it. But again, we still need a solid legal analysis and solid facts to back up our position. That's the key. Facts and website guidance are much like GLAMs, except not written as a full blown legal memorandum. Exams are unlikely to concede anything that goes against the FAQs of the website, but I think appeals is going to be far less inflexible in that area. I mean, we have to see, you never know. So they may dig in on it. But I, I think pretty clearly, since it even says it's not binding, uh, appeals is more like give up. But the bottom line, real problem is if you've got bad facts, you don't have documented facts. You're likely to lose regardless of whether or not 2021 20 is correct or not. It doesn't matter if on your legal analysis you're right. This could have meant this was a government order, and this order could have led to a suspension, but you're unable to show any of that. To link up the dots in your situation, then we have a problem, right? That's a key issue. This has been the current Federal Tax Developments here for the week of uh, November the 13th, 2023 career tax developments, as always is brought to you by your state side CPAs and by Kaplan, financial education. Uh, if you have any questions, you can email me at Zollers at Developments.com. You can also, uh, you know, I do follow along the, uh, connect sites for Arizona, New Jersey, Minnesota, Illinois, uh, and Washington, and also discussion boards at Idaho. Otherwise look forward to talking to you next week. I will be on the road this week. I'm a little hoarse today because I've been talking this last week, right, for various positions, various situations, uh, multiple times. and you know, I finally have to do like back-to-back days and getting back into what that does to your throat. So we'll see how the rest of everything goes. Uh, And so I have some more to do this week, some more things going on. But otherwise, we'll see you back here, uh, preferably next week for more current federal tax developments.